Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today, we're joined by Kylie Sprott. Kylie is an international leader with over 25 years of demonstrated experience and achievement across a variety of industries, including IT, engineering, environmental services, and legal services. Kylie focuses on innovation and how this applies to people, culture, technology, and business growth. Her creativity, combined with her extensive M&A skills and global experience, make her a unique business contributor. Kylie's experience spans Australia, New Zealand, United States, United Kingdom, Ecuador and Asia. An expert in culture mapping, Kylie has conducted the due diligence and led the integration of over 25 organisations globally. She has worked in businesses varying in size from 100 staff to over 8,000, both private and publicly listed. Kylie has led several multidisciplinary teams, including technology, human resources, and marketing. Utilising her broad experience, Kylie currently works in the capacity of Chief Transformation Officer of a publicly listed legal services business and serves on two boards. In addition to her work commitments, Kylie is a keen philanthropist and works closely with the Smith family in the capacity of Leader of Corporate Champions and is the ambassador of Rainbow House Illigan Orphanage in the Philippines. Kylie has also recently joined Willow International as the Australian ambassador. Willow International is an organisation that is focused on restoring the lives of human trafficking victims and putting an end to this global epidemic. A well-respected communicator in the business community, Kylie is an accomplished keynote speaker and regularly publishes articles on her blog and LinkedIn. Kylie has a Bachelor of Arts in Politics, Film and Media, a postgraduate in Business and has studied Strategic Human Resources at both the Australian Graduate of School Management and Harvard Business School. Kylie has formal qualifications in Organisational Change Management from University Technology, Sydney and is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Kylie is an avid traveller, not at the moment probably, and music buff. She enjoys politics, motherhood, and the occasional glass of red wine. Welcome, Kylie. Welcome, Kylie. Thank you. When do you find time to sleep? (laughs) (laughs) I like to be busy. So tell us a little bit about Kylie Sprott. Uh, So after that very long introduction, uh, thank you very much. Uh, So um, I very happily work at uh, Quantum, uh, which is an intellectual property organisation. So I've been there since November last year. So that's my main role. And I also work on a couple of boards. But probably my proudest achievement is being the mum to two wonderful children. So Ruby, who's 14 and a half, and Hamilton, who turns 12 on Saturday. So yeah, two amazing kids. And uh, so I love being their mum. So that keeps me very busy as well. So um, trying to do the maths homework is always a bit of a challenge. Uh, It's very different to when I was at school. Uh, But yeah, I love uh, watching how they're growing and developing their own personalities and love going to their sporting events and just being involved in what they're interested in. So that's a really good part of my life and a nice balance to the corporate world. Yes, absolutely. How... um how has homeschooling treated you? I have to say, I didn't really enjoy the homeschooling. I know some people really loved it. Um, 
And look, Ruby was very self-sufficient and she really got on with it because she's in high school and quite disciplined and organised. Hamilton, not so much. And I realised it wasn't really going very well when he said to me one day, do you think you'd be considered to be an essential worker? (laughs) (laughs) He said, because I heard somewhere that if you're an essential worker, it means that I can go back to school. (laughs) And uh, so I I realised at that point, maybe things weren't going so well from his perspective either. So I contacted the, uh, the teacher, who's a great guy. And we had a chat about it and he went back to school and things improved dramatically after that. So I really feel for those people in Melbourne at the moment who are having to take on that homeschooling again because it's really challenging when you're trying to do that and look after your family as well as do your work during the day. It's an incredible juggle. And I think particularly if they're really young in primary school, it would be really hard. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a massive amount of M&A activity in your world, Kylie. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it was 34 M&As. Uh, actually, I've lost count. When I put it into my bio that it was 25, I reckon it would be over 30 now, so probably 30, 35. Yeah. So um, I should probably write them all down again so I can keep a tally. But you kind of lose count after a while because I'm not sure if you can include the ones that I've been involved in from a board perspective as well. I really only have put the ones there that I've actively been involved in doing the due diligence and the deal and the integration. Um, so I started off doing that when I was working in an IT company a long time ago, and um, they were really keen to get the culture perspective in terms of doing these acquisitions. We did five acquisitions, small little ones, that uh, they, they were okay, but they were kind of low risk. And then we did two mergers, one of which went really well because we were very culturally aligned. Um, and even though there was overlap with the client base, it actually went really well. Um, the second one didn't go so well. And the the core difference was the culture. It was significantly different and uh, it just caused all sorts of problems from the board level down. So that was a really good baptism by fire, I think, because I got to see firsthand what a really good one looks like and what a really terrible one looks like. And uh, I think the culture piece can sometimes be underestimated. I think people get a little bit you know, um, kind of got that deal fever about, you know, trying to get the deal done and it's really exciting at that point. So you start to gloss over things, but the culture piece is often the one that really brings it undone in the integration stage. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really important if you go ahead with the deal for everyone to be very clear up front what it's going to look like after the deal is done. And I think the culture thing is a really critical piece. So, yeah, so I started off doing that a long time ago now. Um, I was in the IT company and then I had... Uh, which another IT company, we did another small one there and then a, a larger one. And then I worked for a large um, global engineering company. We did a lot there, really small ones to really big ones um, all over the world. And what was interesting was also uh, the ones we didn't do. There were plenty that we walked away from and, uh, and rightly so. Um, and I think some of the ones actually got over the line we really should have walked away from as well. So um, lots of learning experiences. And of course, where I'm now, um, we've also been on the acquisition trail. So it's really a core part of most companies' growth strategies is uh, you have the organic growth, but also the growth through M&A. So I think it's a really normal part of doing business nowadays. But um, again, it it can be incredibly successful or it can be an absolute nightmare. And I think the culture piece is the one that um, I would say is a critical one that sometimes is forgotten. So how do you think that piece could be done better? I think it needs to be part of the due diligence process. So again, it's it's good to look at the numbers. It's really good to focus on those. Um, it's really good to look at the client piece um, 
and obviously to see where the overlap is and where the synergies are. I think all of that's really great. Also, the synergies from a cost perspective are really helpful, but the culture piece often isn't covered in the due diligence phase. So that's really about going in there and really assessing in a really practical way, methodically, what your culture is versus the company, the target's culture. And uh, when I've done it myself, what we've done is use the McKinsey 7S model to say, okay, what are the seven aspects and how do we map those out? And generally, it's really helpful to know where the gaps are because if you can see the gaps, you can assess whether or not they're too big to overcome. Or if they're small, then you put in place a strategy as to how you're going to address those. But it means you're very transparent about that upfront at the beginning. I think um, when M&A tends to fall into a bit of strife is when there are suddenly surprises in the integration phase for both sides of the organisation. So things that haven't been disclosed either in the due diligence phase or weren't even asked in the due diligence phase, um, but also expectations. So if you do the culture piece, then you're constantly going into that people element um, rather than just focusing on the numbers. So I think it's really important. I think, like you said, everybody's so keen to get the deal done that the culture piece does get missed, doesn't it? Yes, and I think, you know, um, some organisations are desperate to get M&A over the line, you know, because it, it helps them in terms of growing their revenue and EBITDA and uh, so and some companies get into a bit of a rhythm where they're constantly doing the M&A and uh, so it's kind of becomes part of their culture in terms of doing it. But uh, mm. you do see that white line fever <laughs> where they want to get the deal done. It's the confidentiality behind it too, so you don't get to go to grassroots and talk to you know, yeah. the staff until a later stage in the process. That's right. But you can pick up some things, even from the senior leaders, like you can look for clues. And uh, some of the companies I've been involved in, they will make sure that I go along to a lot of the dinners and uh, with the senior executives and the board of the target to to just sort of suss out what their views are in terms of culture without explicitly saying I'm here to assess you culturally, of course. (laughs) Um, But uh, And often in those kind of environments where people are a bit more relaxed is when you see what they're really... Um, what they really believe and what the culture really is. And they don't necessarily hold back from telling you stories, do they? <laughs> Especially after a couple of glasses of wine. It can get very interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think too, sometimes those synergies that are anticipated in the beginning aren't actually necessarily there or never really actually um, come into fruition later on in the integration phase either? Yeah. I think the other thing that I've seen um, happen a lot, particularly with smaller acquisitions, is often they haven't invested in technology and that gets sometimes missed in the due diligence phase. So they don't really look to see exactly where they're at with their technology and that's actually quite an expensive piece. So when you start to bring them into the company, you need to actually then have this significant investment in technology. So a lot of those synergies are wiped out by having this other investment that you hadn't accounted for. So that's also a really important part, I think, is having a really good look under the bonnet to see exactly what they have in place and understanding how much it will cost to get them up to your level. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really critical piece, I think. Yeah, well, even worse is if they're much better than you are in terms of technology (laughs) and then they may have to make some sacrifices to come back a little bit. That can also be really um, negative. Yeah, or just finding the right balance between the target and the acquirer. Yeah, Yeah, that's right, yeah. Because sometimes too you, you might actually see them doing it a better way so you think, oh, well, there actually is a possibility to, you know, um, have a blend of yeah, yeah. processes and systems and people. That's right, yes. And I think, look, I think um, the, the best case scenario is when you can be really open, both parties can be really open and look for the best possible way forward 
um, rather than it just being our way or the highway. But again, I think also a very dangerous thing that happens is that when you bring in an organisation, you say nothing will change, just continue on as you are and business as usual, like good old phrase, that's very dangerous because if you do need to then make some changes, whether it's in people programs or technology or processes, uh, they usually throw that back at you and say, you told me it was business as usual and that nothing would change and now you're trying to change our business. So I think having that transparency up front is really important so everyone knows exactly what they're getting into. So your role as Chief Transformation Officer for Quantum IP at the moment, so a recent role, Mm -hmm. and how has that sort of gone for you with um, obviously COVID at the beginning of the year? Yeah. Well, uh, firstly, I have to say I'm really proud to work for that organisation. They're an amazing um, bunch of people. They're really, really some of the smartest people I think I've ever come across in my career, Um, and they do really good work, and they have a fantastic culture. So that's probably the thing that's most pleasing from my perspective is that culturally I feel very aligned to the organisation and right from the first meeting um, with the, the then CEO but all the members of the board just felt very aligned to them and uh, they brought in a CEO who I've worked with before and we're also very aligned, feel very aligned to the executive team. So it's a beautiful thing when you have that kind of synergy where you feel completely aligned culturally um, because it also gives you a bit more, um, I guess, freedom to know that you can try be a bit more creative in terms of trying things. So, uh, so I came in and I think I started on the 31st of October, so really the 1st of November. And um, it was really like, you know, trying to get my head around the business and understand exactly what they had in place. And then I started putting together some draft plans and which were really starting to come together very nicely when the CEO started in January. And of course, then COVID hit and we'd started to get some traction on a number of different things, but we were still really just getting to know the business and starting to put together the plans around transformation when COVID hit. And um, like from a, from a difficulty perspective, it was challenging to continue to make those relationships work because I was no longer able to travel to, to Melbourne and Sydney and the bulk of our people are in Melbourne. And uh, so that was a a bit of a disappointment because I'm very much a people person and I like engaging directly face-to-face. But by far the biggest challenge was the fact that most of our people had not worked remotely before and uh, they didn't necessarily have the technology in place to do that effectively and our managers hadn't been trained as to how to manage people remotely. So this was a big, um, massive burning platform. So within two weeks we had to mobilise a workforce that had never worked from home to all working from home Um, And it was a bit of a scramble at first, to be honest with you. But then what happened was the CEO and I realised this is a great opportunity for us to really push through some technology changes. So we uh, did a a rapid deployment of Microsoft Teams. We did that within three weeks, which would normally take three to four months. And uh, we also refreshed our entire fleet of hardware, which desperately needed to be done. But we did that very rapidly as well. So we had this really big change happen in a very short space of time. Um, And I think the organisation was a little bit shocked um, at how quickly things moved, but I'm really proud of the fact that we did that at pace and that it it was such a great outcome so that people could collaborate and communicate and have really good tools at their disposal. So the productivity didn't really drop. And the other thing which was fantastic that I'm also really proud to be associated with is we had these amazing people and culture leaders in uh, Quantum and their focus on making sure our people were really supported in terms of mental health and resilience um, during that time was just phenomenal. Really good communications, really good programs, 
lots of access to webinars and one-on-one um, assist programs with our employee assistance programs, um, really, really lead, uh, leading stuff that, that a lot of other organisations in our industry weren't doing. So our people are incredibly well supported, had the right tools. So actually, in a way, even though it's a really negative thing um, for our people to be kind of distanced from each other, we achieved a lot in a very short space of time. So I'm really proud of that. Yeah, that's phenomenal. In Melbourne too, going through the second wave. I know. I really feel feel for them. them. Yeah. Yeah. I sent them a little note this morning uh, to our other members of the executive team. Our CEO sent one last night just saying, you know, that we're all thinking of you because he's in Sydney and, of course, I'm in Brisbane. And I uh, just reiterated and said, we'll do whatever we can to help you. And again, that's the culture piece. I think working for an organisation where our CEO has openly stated our number one priority during COVID is to try and make sure all of our people still have a job and to keep them safe. Um, so, you know, it hasn't impacted our productivity. People know that we're trying really hard to make sure they're all right. And the senior executives and the principals all took a pay cut for six months. Um, we didn't bring that further down do we just wanted to make sure we had a bit of a buffer there so that if anything did happen our people would be safe and not all organizations have handled it that way so it's really again culturally just very proud to work for that company yeah absolutely and I think too with um you know being a public listed entity and ASIC now focusing more on remuneration practices especially mm. off the back of COVID um it's um on the in the spotlight yes exactly yeah and again, it's it's an interesting one because I, in some ways, you know, I would say that we're working harder than we've ever worked. And obviously, coupled with a pay cut is always a bit of a challenge because trying to articulate that in a way that makes it compelling. But I think there's a, a real sense of everyone being in it together and banding together. So I think there's a bit of a bonding experience that comes from that. Um, obviously, some people weren't thrilled to bits and it is a bit challenging when you've got your own you know personal commitments about having a pay cut but I think if it means our people you know can be retained for much longer and hopefully we can ride through the storm then it's a really positive thing. And how's everyone in Melbourne holding up? Oh look I think they're all a bit sad about having to go back into the lockdown and I think they're frustrated as well because you know it's in some ways it's worse than it was the first time around. Uh, you know, I think they feel a bit isolated from the rest of Australia, especially from Queensland, because we're, you know, virtually having very little impact on our lives now. Um, I did explain to them, I, I think there's a bit of a sense of fear, actually, in Queensland at the moment. I think we're watching and there's a nervousness that it could be coming our way. So, um, and seeing what's happening in Sydney and New South Wales, I think that there is a bit of a fear starting to sweep through Queensland. But, yeah, I really do feel for them. And it's particularly hard when you can't, when it's really cold and wet and you're just stuck inside. Yeah. I think also for their, for their mental well-being. Like, I think there's curfew between 8 yeah. and 5 and then they're only allowed out for a maximum of one hour to exercise. And yeah, that's right. You've got to go to the supermarket on your own. So you don't even have, you know. I know, I know. That support. Well, and I think, I think it would be particularly challenging. I was talking about this with a friend this morning on, on the drive here. It would be particularly challenging if you were in a home with people that you weren't very well connected to. Like if you weren't particularly well connected to your partner or you weren't having a a great relationship with whoever you were sharing that space with, to then be locked into that environment 24-7 with very little, you know, um, time away from it would be really challenging. And so I think that's the other thing that's – it would be hard enough if just having the lockdown, but then if you were in an environment where you were – either very lonely, no one was with you, or in an environment where you weren't particularly close or um, enjoying the time with the people you were confined with, I think that would be really hard. Yeah, that's the sort of the vulnerable 
members of the community are the, mm. you know, most hard done by at the moment. Yeah, I think there's all those links to domestic violence and mental health as well. So there's, yeah, lots of challenges that come with this. But we're going to see lots of studies coming out of the back of us, aren't we? Yeah, I just think it's also interesting from a psychology perspective because I don't know about you, but I found when we were in lockdown, it was, it was just myself and my two children at home and I found it really hard not to have face-to-face interaction uh, because most of my ideas come from talking to other people and chatting with them and, and I get energy from being around other people and that's not really possible through video calls. It's just not the same. And after a while, as much as I love my kids, there's only so much you can talk about Fortnite and the Vampire Diaries without starting to need <laughs> something maybe a little bit heavier. And uh, so, um, so I was really keen to get some way of having that that engagement. So my work around was ended up paying my personal trainer every day to meet me at the park, so I could at least have one adult conversation. And then I realised I could go via the coffee shop home and get a takeaway coffee and. Most of the time I'd lurk around hoping to see one of my friends there and sometimes I was lucky enough to do it but I became friends with the barista and had another adult conversation. So as long as I had a couple of face-to-face interactions every day, I was okay. But um, I think without that, I would have definitely really found it incredibly challenging. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's just bringing back a flood of memories, really. (laughs) (laughs) Our poor friends in Melbourne. Yeah, Yeah. really feel for them. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a bit about your um, philanthropic uh, activity. Oh, look, you know, I was actually talking about this the other day with someone. It was interesting because I think for a very long time, I've always been a bit of a sucker for anything to do with children or animals. I've always donated to the Smith family. I've always sponsored kids with the Smith family for, gosh, it must be must be 20 years now I've been um, maybe 25 years I've been um, donating regularly and sponsoring children to the Smith family and the RSPCA because I love animals so I was always donating to those things and then World Vision as well so um, just because that was always a personal thing but I hadn't really done much more than give money to be honest with you and um, I had this very interesting moment where the penny really dropped for me because I grew up in a family with two boys, like I was the middle child between two brothers. And uh, so I was probably a bit of a tomboy, really. And um, so I didn't really understand when women were putting their hands up and saying, I I am finding this really hard, I'm not getting the opportunities. Or So I didn't really understand what they were talking about. I just think it's not that hard, you know, just give it a crack. It's really, you need to try a bit harder or, you know, put your hand up properly and ask for things. And so I didn't really understand what they were talking about, to be honest with you, and I worked in this company um, where we actually had some projects that were in, in developing nations and we, as an executive team, went to Papua New Guinea once to see an education program that we'd sponsored. And uh, so because we were the visiting dignitaries, they put us right down the front of this particular um, program, and which felt a bit silly because we'd never met any of these people, so I don't know why we were special enough to be down the front. And I was in the, sort of towards the centre because I was the only woman in the executive team, as usual, and I didn't think anything of it. Honestly, it didn't seem weird to me. And uh, anyway, there were probably about 100 students, 80 to 100 students. Most of those would have been women and most of them had their children with them. And uh, the other, you know, say 15 to 20% were disabled men or really elderly men. And they said to them, we're just going to choose six of you to stand up and tell our, you know, our visitors here what you got out of this particular program. And this woman stood up and she had her daughter with her and she said, I'm very grateful for doing this training because it's the first training I've ever had in my life 
And I learned that it's not okay for my husband to hit me every night. And to be honest with you, like even now when I think about it, it just makes me feel incredibly ill to my stomach. And I remember looking at her and the shame that swept over her face and she hit, her head went down, her daughter's head went down and all the women's heads went down, all the children's heads went down. And I realised every single one of them was having this domestic violence issue every single night. And um, that was such an epiphany for me because really I was no better than these women. I just happened to be born in a different country and different coloured skin. And not to say we don't have domestic violence in Australia because we do, but I'd never encountered anything like that because purely the virtue of where I'd been born and my family. And uh, it was nothing to do with me being anything special. It was literally the fact that we had these different circumstances as to which country we'd we'd grown up in. So I realised at that point, there was no point in them putting their hand up and asking for opportunities because it just wasn't going to come to them. So it was a really strong epiphany for me that, you know, that if you're fortunate enough to find yourself in, in a good position where you have influence and you have a voice, and it's really important to use that voice. And so that was a really a, a bit of a turning point for me. And at that point, I decided to definitely start to get more involved in, in projects where I could actually make a bit of a difference. And as much as I'm very proud of of the work I've done from a corporate perspective, um, I, f- I think there's a different degree of satisfaction that comes from making a difference in someone's life in a personal way um, through some of those different efforts. And so as a result from that, I've really been passionate about taking opportunities when they've come my way. So, um, so the Smith family approached me about being the leader of the corporate champions. Um, and that was a great boost to, to me. Like I was really proud to be associated. And I thought it was, it was funny at the time because I thought that it was because I'd been a sponsor for so long that they kind of did some profiling exercise with their sponsors. But it was because they saw me speak at something, so, um, which was very flattering. And uh, so very happy to – I sometimes get to emcee their events and I get to uh, go and speak to their graduates. And, but one of the best things of all is that, as I said, I've sponsored children through the Smith family for a very long time. But I got to actually, through um, having a deeper association with them, become a mentor to a university um, student who is the first person in her family to go to university. And uh, the wonderful Indy. And uh, I have to say that that's probably one of the proudest things for me was because I got to actually see her and talk to her and have a, a face-to-face relationship with her rather than just giving money to a you know, faceless student. And that was a huge thing for me, and I'm so proud of her. Like, she's graduated, she's now doing really well in her corporate job, and uh, she's really become a member of our family, to be honest with you. Like, I think of her as another one of my family. So she knows my mum, she knows my brother, she knows my kids really well. She sometimes stays at her house and looks after my kids. So she's a beautiful person, and that's really comes from the, the relationship with the Smith family. Um, so I was also asked to be the um, ambassador for Rainbow House Elegant, which is an orphanage in the Philippines. And the founder of that orphanage, again, just an ordinary guy who um, was asked to go there and help rebuild some buildings after a typhoon hit. And um, anyway, when they were doing some of these buildings, he noticed these young children wandering around with no clothes on, just with no one looking after them. And it turned out their parents had been swept away in this typhoon. And like there were two and three and he just thought, oh, someone has to do something about this. And so he built a, an orphanage and to house some of those children. And, um, and again, they've all gone on to have a great education and they're now giving back to their community all the time. So just really proud to be associated with that. And, um, 
And the other one, there's two more, so I feel like I'm talking a no, long time No, that's here. okay. Uh, the, the, of course, is the, um, the Oranges Toolkit. I'm a non-executive director with them, and they're associated with Camp Quality. And I love the work that they do because um, it's all about building resilience and optimism in corporates and sporting teams and all sorts of different um, ways with people. But all the profits from the Oranges Toolkit get reverted back to Camp Quality, so which is a course for children who are you know, very ill with cancer. So um, that's fantastic. But my most recent one that I'm very pleased to um, to get involved in is with Willow International. So a very good friend of mine in the US is on their board and uh, they're an anti-trafficking organisation. They focus on globally making sure that, you know, this stops in terms of slavery and trafficking for young women and children. And uh, so they've asked me to be the ambassador for Australia. So it's right in my sweet spot. It's to do with women and children and um, it's all about education and making sure they have a different life. So all of those things are very, um, I think, very fulfilling from my perspective. And uh, something that I think is interesting is that, you know, it's all about modelling, I think, with your children. And I'm so proud of my daughter because she um, is now actually volunteering for the Smith family and she does this Reader to Reader program every Monday and Tuesday afternoon where she helps a young child with their reading and you can't see them again it's all over the you know the internet with the the using the pc but it's just wonderful to see her also starting to give back and i just think that's a i feel very pleased that she's obviously seen what i do and thinks it's normal so that she's setting up a really good start in the philanthropy space as well which is really pleasing that's really nice to hear, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's... I'm very proud of her. <laughs> I'm proud of both of them, actually. They're both wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you get experience in Ecuador? How did oh, that come about? That was actually with a um, an acquisition with the company that I was working in. I actually wasn't involved in the due diligence of that one, um, but um, I was involved in the integration of that business. And I have to say, I thought the people there were just fantastic. They were just lovely. Unfortunately, the acquisition didn't work out so well. It... Um, which was, it was actually a really great example of cultural differences. Um, so as you may be aware in Ecuador, you know, sometimes things aren't always done in the same way that we would do things. And uh, that didn't, strangely enough, come out in the due diligence. So unfortunately, yeah, that ended up being a bit of a disaster because um, there were all sorts of allegations of fraud there and bribery. So it was interesting because you can sort of, you can stumble into those countries without fully understanding exactly what you're getting yourself into. And I think that phrase, business as usual, perhaps is a little bit dangerous, particularly in that scenario. But I have to say that my visits there were very enjoyable. And one of the things that I remember quite fondly is that myself and a colleague were going to the airport there and there was supposed to be a driver to pick us up. And um, our other colleague who was, he's actually Colombian, he was waiting for us at the hotel and he'd organised this driver. And I'm quite tall and I've got pale skin and... Um, there was no sign of the driver at the airport. So I was just standing outside looking around, trying to see where this driver was. And um, my colleague had gone off to try and see if we could call our other friend. And anyway, there was just this sort of um, group of people who started circling around me as if I was from outer space because I looked so different to them. I was probably twice their size. They were really tiny and they all had dark hair and dark skin, dark eyes. And I just looked like a complete outsider, which I guess I was. And, uh, but it did feel a little bit disconcerting because I looked so different and, um, and I felt really, really, what's the word, out of place. But it was funny from my perspective because, of course, being Australians, we just went, oh, it's okay, we'll just jump in a cab. So <laughs> we jumped in a cab. We finally got to speak to our friend from Colombia who was waiting at the hotel who had kittens when he knew we'd just jumped in a cab and not with the driver that was supposed to be waiting for us. 
and then to make it worse, the cab driver just abruptly stopped while we were talking to Edgar. And I think he thought we were going to get kidnapped or something would happen. And um, anyway, what happened was just happened to be an accident just ahead of us and it was one of the cab driver's friends. So he jumped out to make sure he was okay, came back to us. There was no drama. We got to the hotel, everything was fine. But I think there is obviously quite a bit of danger there. So you have to be, you know, very careful. But I had a lovely time. I really enjoyed getting to know those people and it's just a bit of a shame how it all worked out in the end. Yeah. It's a good lesson about due diligence though. So with going through many, so many DDs, what's your sort of top three tips to make them um, come off really well? I think the people bit is the first bit is I think really being very, very um, clear about that culture piece because unless you're going to keep them as completely separate entities under an umbrella, um, then that's really critical. But even in that scenario, you really need to make sure there's a good fit in terms of the executive and board with the people that are coming into the organisation, the senior people. So uh, I think that's number one. Number two would be um, make sure you have a really good look under the hood in terms of the technology, just because I've, again, seen that cost millions of dollars that wasn't planned for in terms of trying to then get them up to a certain standard. Um, And I think the third one is to talk a lot about the integration during the deal and talk a lot about what's coming so that there are no surprises I think it's really disappointing when there are surprises on both sides and, uh, you know, just eroding that trust is, is, is always going to have problems. So I think if you can build the trust by being really transparent and having no surprises at all, I think that really helps a lot. So, Kylie, you wrote an article, I think it's on your website, Perfectionism, Procrastination and the Power of the Pomodoro. <laughs> what inspired, <laughs> a lot of alliteration there. <laughs> what inspired you to write that article? Oh, well, um, at the time I was actually, um, I was coaching this chief technology officer and he and I were talking about um, how perfectionism can be quite crippling. And, you know, I certainly have perfectionist tendencies and um, he said that, you know, basically we talked about the whole idea that often perfectionists uh, – so busy trying to see what the end result looks like in their head that they can't quite start until they know exactly what it's going to, how it will be perfect. And also this fear of it not being perfect means they don't quite start. So often they will have these, these ideas or projects that don't actually get completed or they don't actually start and they, it has this kind of cycle um, which makes it worse because you keep procrastinating uh, because you can't see how it's going to be perfect. So you get into this terrible cycle where you actually start to doubt yourself and you, you find it harder to get things done. And we were talking about this Pomodoro technique, which is often used by um, software developers, which is all about sprints, effectively, and um, about removing distractions. And the Pomodoro is actually Italian for tomato. So you might remember a long time ago in, in kitchens, it was quite fashionable to have those little tomato egg timers. Egg timers. Yeah, our mums probably had them. And uh, anyway, so it's really, it's the Pomodoro is about the egg timer. And uh, effectively what you do is you, for 25 minutes, you set a timer, you remove all distractions. So you remove your phone, you don't answer any phones, you don't answer texts, you don't look at emails, you just do one task. And it's, uh, it's really powerful because in a way you're tricking yourself because you go 25 minutes, that's no big deal. I can do 25 minutes. Whereas if I said to you, you're going to sit down now and do six hours of work on this particular piece of work, most people feel a little intimidated by that. Um, whereas with 25 minutes, you're saying, okay, just 25 minutes of your time and just focus on one thing. And what happens is because you're just focused on one thing, you don't have these other distractions, which are um, making it harder for you to get things done. 
it's amazing what you can get done in that 25 minutes. And often what happens is it kind of tricks you into a state of flow. And because you get so focused, you start to really enjoy it and you lose track of time. But when the buzzer goes off or the, you know, that egg timer goes off at 25 minutes, then you're supposed to have a five-minute break and that's considered to be one sprint. And so you go through this kind of process of seeing how many sprints you can do in a day, which are really focused pieces of work. So um, if you need to do something which is really painful, let's, let's say you know, it was a tax return or it was you know, um, you know, doing some, some kind of report that you weren't particularly interested in, it's a really good technique because it start, makes you start. And because it's only 25 minutes, most people go, okay, I can handle that. Next thing you know, you've gone through a really difficult piece of work and you've done it in these little sprints. But often what happens is after you've done, I usually find after two or three sprints, I don't want to have the break. I just want to keep going because you're in that state of flow. So it's a, it's a really powerful technique. And I've um, spoken about it at conferences and I've written the, written the article and talked about it even with people I work with now. And it, it's just a really good way to help, help you stay focused. Um, because generally what happens, and I don't know about you, but the phone can be your friend, but can also be your worst enemy because, you know, you you feel compelled to check out Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn and you want to see the news, see what's going on. And then next thing you know, you've lost an hour. And um, when you're really busy, an hour is gold, right? You can't really afford to waste your time. So I just think it's a really good way to keep you focused on what's actually important in the day. I, and um, I don't know about you, but I had that little screen time app going on, on my phone, which tells me at the end of every week exactly what my screen time is. And my goal is to keep on reducing it every week. And so far I'm tracking really well. And, uh, and a lot of that is using the Pomodoro to make sure I don't get distracted with the phone. Yeah, it's all about keeping disciplined and focused. And, and as a perfectionist, you then actually have a, you start. It's probably the right way of putting it. Rather than getting kind of caught up in trying to figure out what the end is, you just do little chunks and, and next thing you know, it's done. Great advice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think we'll um, be using we'll that one. that one. Yeah. <laughs> you can even use it with things like housework and all sorts. Of, I've used it for everything under the sun. It's really amazing. It's just a, tricking your brain. Yeah, definitely. I do use something similar for housework. I always like ring my sister and I go, okay, now we're going to start in the kitchen and we're going to start go to the lounge room and now we're oh, going to really? go to the bedroom. And so we stay on speaker and wander through the house together because then we're like, you know, she does her housework, I do my housework and yeah. That's fantastic. I love it. I often play music too. Yeah. yeah that's the other thing that distracts me. So um, is there anything you want to leave our listeners with today, Kylie, before we wrap up? Or oh, I just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity and i um, really grateful that you allowed me to talk about um, Quantum, but also the other organisations I work with. I probably should give a quick plug also to Position Partners that I'm on their non-executive director board with and also Queensland Futures Institute. Um, I'm so also their ambassador. I forgot about that. Um, so Queensland Futures Institute is actually um, a body which brings together the top universities and also all the uh, politicians and government representatives as well as large corporates together to really try to shape Queensland to be a better place. So very pleased to be their ambassador as well. Um, but yeah, position partners have been on their board for probably, um, gosh, must be five years now. And I'm very proud of them. They're an amazing organisation um, which does very, very good work and they run very well. They have a great CEO and a great executive team there and a great chair. Um, but thank you so much for talking about all, letting me talk about all the things I'm passionate about because um, it's nice to have someone interested in what you're doing and, and your life's work. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Truly inspiring. Thank oh, you, Thank Carly. you. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you very much. That's all for today. 
Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.3wiseowls.com.au.